Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons. We continue to look at the doctrine of creation, and this is now lesson five of six. Last Lord's Day, we noted that the creation was a free act of the triune God. All three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were and are involved in creation. And we also noted that God was under no compulsion or necessity to create. He did not need to create us because he was lonely. He did not need to create us to complete him. There was no deficiency in God that required him to create. And if you want to say that creation was a necessity, you can, at least in the sense that God willed it necessary in order to execute his decree. Creation came about by the mere sovereign will and pleasure of God. Again, Paul stated in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, I believe this point of understanding that creation is a free act of God is important because it guards us against so much nonsense today coming from those who want to compromise the creation account with various theories made in the name of science. It's not as though creation was just there and God just kind of stumbled upon it and decided, well, am I going to do anything with this? And if so, what? Nor did it just bang into being and then God decides to do something with it. Well, our confession goes on to state, because our Bible states, that it pleased God, quote, in the beginning to create or make of nothing all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Three things I want to point out of this today in this lesson. One, that there was a beginning of time and space, and God created that beginning. The most obvious place you see this is in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So again, it wasn't a random act of nature because there was no nature until God called it into being. Again, we read this Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There you see the clear contrast between the created world, which was brought forth, versus the God who alone is everlasting to everlasting. So before this beginning that we read about in Genesis 1, there was nothing but God. And it was solely by the will and power of God that everything came into being. The universe not only has no power to call itself into being, it has no power to continue its existence. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then Peter states in 2 Peter 3, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
Thus, Warcraft writes, it stands every second of its existence dependent upon the sustaining hand of Almighty God. Just as creation itself was the work of God alone, so the work of controlling, maintaining, and perfecting this creation is the work of God alone. God in Christ holds all things together. There is no cohesion to life outside of Christ. Without him, things fly apart. Christ moves all things along by his powerful word to their appointed goal, Hebrews 1.3. Outside of Christ, life is dark, dead, and without meaning. End quote. The second point to make of this statement from the confession, which kind of overlaps with the first point, is to notice that God created out of nothing, quote unquote. And we have one of those nice $5, well, $10, theological terms for this, ex nihilo. That is a Latin phrase. It means out of, ex nihilo, nothing. Again, like with the phrase in the beginning, this is a very important concept that we must affirm because it guards us against so much nonsense we see going on today. Nowhere does the Bible portray God as stumbling upon something that had already existed. And then he decides, all right, well, let me do something with it. There was nothing. And then there came to be something. And there came to be something out of nothing, not because nothing exploded and formed itself, which people actually believe, which just boggles my mind, but because God, who has always been, spoke or thought everything into being. He thought it into existence. Calvin writes, when God in the beginning created the heaven and earth, the earth was empty and waste, which he did, by the way. God created it that way initially. But he moreover teaches by the word created that what before did not exist was now made. For he has not used the term yatsar, which signifies to frame or forms, but bara, or bara, which signifies to create. Therefore, his meaning is, is that the world was made out of nothing. Hence, the folly of those is refuted who imagine that unformed matter existed from eternity and who gather nothing else from the narration of Moses than that the world was furnished with new ornaments and received a form of which it was before destitute. This indeed was formerly a common fable among heathens who had received only an obscure report of the creation and who, according to custom, adulterated the truth of God with strange figments. But for Christian men to labor in maintaining this gross error is absurd and intolerable. Let this then be maintained in the first place that the world is not eternal, but was created by God. End quote. And we see this expressed over and over again throughout Scripture. Just in the creation account alone, notice what we read over and over again. Genesis 1, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, 
and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 21, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, I hope you're getting the point. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created him. Notice the pattern. Notice the wording you see over and over again. And God said, and then God said, and then it was so. It was so because he said it. You see this affirmed elsewhere outside of Genesis. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Notice, there wasn't something there, visible, and then God reshaped what was there. But rather, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, it came out of nothing. And it came into being solely, quote, by the word of God. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now, I want to add a little side note here regarding this phrase, God said. I don't think it's necessarily the case here that this is referring to an audible sound, as if, you know, if you would have been there, you'd have heard a loud voice, like a loudspeaker or something. That doesn't seem to be the emphasis here in this text. Russell Grigg, over at Creation Ministries International, which we've got some friends over there, makes a very interesting observation here. And bear with me, this quote is a little lengthy, but I believe he make, what he says here is very important. And it ties into what we've been seeing so far. After pointing out this pattern of the words God said throughout the first chapter of Genesis, he states, there are three other times mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 when God spoke, verses 22, 28, and 29. In the first two of these, God addressed himself to his created beings and commanded them to be fruitful and increase in number, and in the last one, God specified the food for humans, birds, and animals. Possibly God spoke through the mechanism of instinct when he was addressing the animals and audibly when he was addressing man so that man would hear what these instructions were. On the other eight times of creation, when God spoke, what he said did not need to be audible. In fact, on the eighth occasion, let us make man in our image, God appears to be speaking to himself, or at least among the members of the Trinity. On this occasion, and therefore on the other seven occasions as well, God's speaking was equivalent to God's decree or God's willing. In other words, the word of God and the will of God are here synonymous. God willed the creation to take place, which occurred in eight separate stages spread over six successive days. 
These stages are marked for us in Genesis chapter 1 by eight separate, quote-unquote, words from God, introduced each time by the formula, and God said, and then God said. But in essence, they are putting forth, they are the putting forth of God's will on each occasion to accomplish his purpose with no other reason or cause than that he desired it to happen. All this means that God did not use any evolutionary processes to bring about creation. In the first place, creation by definition has to be instantaneous. It cannot be a process. In the second place, the idea called theistic evolution, that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God will use a method of random copying mistakes to form his creatures, not only makes a lie of what God himself has stated, but reduces God to the level of man's ingenuity. Creation was a series of specific and immediate acts of God brought about solely by his word or his will. The significance of this for man is overwhelming and highlights the reason why there is so much emphasis by men today with godless theories of evolution. Evolution seeks to do away with God as creator. But the target of evolutionary philosophy is much wider than this. It is to do away with God as moral lawgiver and God as the ultimate judge of all the earth. The reason for this is that the creation of man and the world by God established for all time, God's right to set the rules by which man should live. The creation shows not only that God has the right to pronounce his laws for holy living, but also that God has the authority to set the penalty for those people who choose not to obey his laws. So what does all this have to do with God's having created the world by the exercise of his will expressed by his word? Just this. Scoffers, who the Bible says do two things, namely scoff and follow their own evil desires, would do well to note that God does not intend that the world should go on as it is forever. The Bible states, and we just read it, Peter, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This earth, which God took the trouble to create and pronounced to be very good, has been marked by him for destruction, like a new motor car that serves its owner's purpose for a while and then becomes obsolete. The earth is going to be, quote unquote, melted down and superseded because it too will be obsolete for God's future purpose. And let me just clarify here. What's becoming obsolete is not the earth per se, but as it is in its current state, corruption. But the question may well be asked, goes not uh, Griggs, but how can we be sure that this is going to happen? Well, this is where faith comes in. Not blind, unreasoning, unreasonable faith, but quiet confidence based on what God says he is going to do and on what God did and how he did it at creation. The Apostle Peter invokes the flood as proof of creation and makes the point that it is the same word of God that produced the heavens and earth that is reserving them for judgment. All of which is to say the demonstration of God's power at the beginning of the age is adequate proof that he is well able to do all the things he has said he is going to do at the end of the age. Whether it be the creation of a new heaven and new earth to supersede the present, the resurrection of the just and unjust, or the holding of a final great judgment, God has only to say the word that has exercised his will 
and they will all come to pass, end quote. I think that's an excellent point in keeping with what we've been saying all along. That's the lesson you need to be learning about creation. That's what you need to be focused on. Instead of wasting your time trying to reconcile what God says with nonsense, like evolution and Big Bang theories. Again, God did not stumble upon this stuff and then take time to contemplate, well, what, am I going to do anything with it? If I am, what am I going to do? There were no long, drawn-out processes here. There was no trial and error. There was no Big Bang. It's all nonsense, beloved. Rather, creation was precise. It was intentional. It is the execution of God's eternal decree, which he had determined solely by his mere sovereign will and pleasure. In order to, as we've discussed already, to manifest his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, goodness, wrath, and truth, and grace, and it's all centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're never going to understand that. You're never going to arrive at that reality and purpose of creation apart from his word. And it's the same word, that same thought, that same mind, that same will that brought all things into being to begin with. Well, the third and the last thing to point out here quickly before we end this lesson concerns the phrase, in the space of six days. If you've been paying attention, I think you know, you already, I think you already guessed where I'm, going, where I'm going to go with this. If we have established the purpose of creation and then the means by which God brought it about, the question as to whether these are six 24-hour days or not, to me, is very simple. One, what does the Bible tell us indicate to us is the meaning of these uh, terms and two is what the bible indicates to us if, is it are we making it difficult because god's vague or ambiguous or is it because we're coming at this text with an agenda and we're divorcing the reality of creation from the purpose of creation that god has already stated to us well to sum it up as raymond does in his systematic uh, he gives seven points really quick regarding uh, the days. It seems to me very clear and simple. One, the word day, yom, in the singular, dual, and plural occurs some 2,225 times in the Old Testament with the overwhelming preponderance of these occurrences designating an ordinary daily cycle. Two, the recurring phrase and the evening and the morning taken together constituted day one, day two, day three, etc. suggest as much as well. The qualifying words evening and morning attached here to each of these recurring statements occur together outside of Genesis in 30 verses, and in each instance, these words are employed to describe an ordinary day. Third, in the 476 other cases in the Old Testament where Yom stands in conjunction with a cardinal or an ordinal number, as in Exodus 12, 15, and 24, 16, Leviticus 12, 3, it never means anything other than a normal, literal, uh, literal day. Fourth, with the creation of the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night occurring on the fourth day, days four through six would almost certainly have been ordinary days. This would suggest that the seventh would also have been an ordinary day. Fifth, if we follow the analogy of scripture principle of hermeneutics enunciated in our confession of faith to the effect that the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself, then the ordinary day view has most to commend it since Moses 
grounds the commandment regarding the seventh-day Sabbath observance in the fact of the divine exemplar's activity. We quote it every week. In, the, in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that in them is, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That becomes our pattern. Sixth, in the 858 occurrences of the plural days, Yamin in the, in the Old Testament, their references are always ordinary days. Ages are never expressed by this Hebrew word. And seventh, finally, had Moses intended to express the idea of seven ages in Genesis 1, he could have employed the Hebrew term olam, which means age or period of indeterminate duration. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a wrap. It's, it's pretty plain and simple. But if you don't think it's that simple, then ask yourself the question, why? What's driving you to interpret it any other way? I mean, surely you would not suggest that it's impossible for God to do it this way. I hope not. So what's driving the need to take it any other way? What possible reason would it serve in God's eternal purpose to manifest his attributes and make Christ preeminent by dragging these days out for millions and billions of years? What would be the point of that? And this is why I emphasize that purpose, that point in the first two lessons. That eternal decree in Christ, making him preeminent in the manifestation of all his attributes, that is what's driving creation. Creation is the execution of that eternal decree. And when we begin to entertain and play around with various man-made theories, whether we intentionally uh, or not, what we are really doing is entertaining a purpose that's contrary to what he's established by his word. So there's no reason for it, and it's dangerous. And as we have already noted in a previous lesson, many of those who advocate evolution and Big Bang are very explicit in their anti-God, anti-Bible agenda. So why are we playing around with, the, with that fire? When we do so, we are getting away from God's stated intended purpose. And my clock is blinking. So we'll end there. <clears throat> and then, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will then transition into highlighting specifically the creation of man and the significance of that.